invite Austin to come up this morning. Austin's going to read the word for us as we wrap up this series in fasting that we have been. Thanks, Austin, for reading. If you all stand for the reading of the word this morning. That was my line. Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Uh, Vertical or horizontal? Always a question. Uh, It's great to be up here. I don't get to be up here very often. They don't let me. Um, (laughs) uh, I'm reading out of Esther 4 this morning, uh, and I'm actually reading the whole chapter, so brace yourself. It's a long one. Uh, Starting in verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went to Mordecai, excuse me, in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened uh, to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is, it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Austin. Uh, thank you, Mitchell, as well. You uh, set me up well in uh, drawing sort of this uh, comparison between feasting and fasting, so I appreciate it. We are continuing uh, on fasting. Today I, is our last um, sermon on fasting. And uh, I have to admit, I do not think my life is one that is characterized by fasting. Uh, and it wasn't really until about almost 20 years ago that I went to a part of the world where fasting was a significant practice. 
in 2004, I moved to Kashmir, North India. And in that part of the world, the majority of the people there are Muslim. And many of you might know that Muslims during the holy month of Ramadan will fast from eating uh, all day from sunup till sundown. They won't drink anything, including water, and they don't smoke. And so the whole world sort of changes. The rhythm of the day completely adjusts for the fast. So if you are out and about, you would see people walking around lethargically because they're hungry and they're thirsty, um, sort of physically in anguish. Uh, all of the restaurants have, and chai stalls would have signs up that say, open for non-Muslims only, and they put up these giant curtains that sort of block the view into the restaurant. So if you're sneaking in, uh, you, you can get away with it, right, from breaking the fast. And so it was a common thing as an outsider because they, they sort of assumed you didn't care about the fast. And so a lot of my friends, I'd go in to their homes or into their, their shops where they were working, and because I was there, they would ask if I had water in my backpack and ask me for a sneak of water, or they would light up cigarettes and because pretty much everybody there smokes. And then when someone would walk in this, this shop or wherever, they'd pass me their lit cigarette to make it look like it was mine. Um, but fasting was serious business. It was a whole adjustment. Now, I, again, didn't grow up in a tradition where, where fasting was emphasized. But what was interesting about fasting in Kashmir was that it was communal. It was public. Everybody did it together. In sharing together in the fast, everyone knew what everybody else was feeling. They knew the hunger pains of the person next to them. Since all of the men smoked, they all knew what it was like longing for the next puff. They could empathize. They could relate. They knew the sufferings, the thirst. They knew what their friends were experiencing. In the same context, going from fast to feast was equally communal. If you were out and about at sunset when the, fa when the fast was broken, people would join together and invite you in to the feast. They would pass around water and dried fruit and nuts and dates to consume as they broke the fast. On one particular day of the fast, I happened to be on the bus at Iftiar, which is the moment when the sun sets and the fast is broken. And people pulled out their bags and are passing around their bags of dates. And I had this one little old lady basically shoving a date in my mouth, trying to get me to join in. That in the evenings during the fast, there would be celebrations and parties, and everybody was invited to the feast. Both the fasting and the feasting were significant community events. Scott and Mitchell have spoken the last three weeks on fasting. We have explored how fasting for followers of Jesus is, is aimed at offering ourselves to Jesus, experiencing growth and holiness, how fasting can amplify our prayers. And today we are exploring fasting as a discipline that enables us to stand with the poor, the marginalized, and those who are typically left uninvited to the feast. Of course, these four things often overlap and are interconnected. In some ways it feels difficult to separate them out. Um, I mean, you know, hopefully when we're praying for people, uh, and, and fasting for people, standing with them, were also petitioning that their grief and their sorrow would go away. Today's scripture passage is in the book of Esther. Esther is a queen who stands in solidarity with those who are mourning while petitioning and pleading for deliverance. 
So if you know me, you know that I like context, and picking one chapter out of the book of Esther doesn't tell us the background. And I have to sort of lay the foundation of chapters 1 through 3, so I'll do so briefly. In Esther, the Jews are in captivity. They've been taken away from, from Israel, Judah, and they're living in what is now Persia, or sort of they, they were taken into Babylon, and the Persians are now ruling that area. The king of Persia throws a 180-day feast, six months of feasting and partying, and the scripture tells us it's overflowing with endless wine and revelry. The king's wife, the queen, is Vashti at this point, and Vashti just so happens is also having a big feast with all of the women in her part of the palace. After the 180-day feast comes to an end, after the party ends, the king celebrates a separate seven-day feast where he invites even more people into the palace, and this time he asks Vashti, his queen, to come so he can show her off to all of his buddies. The queen doesn't like this. Vashti disobeys the king. The king sends her away and gets rid of her. It's after this that the king decides, eh, I need a new queen. So he invites women to come, try out, so I actually remember a children's uh, church curriculum many years ago that talked about it being a beauty pageant where all these women are invited and, uh, and they try out, if you will, to become a queen. And it just so happens in this beauty pageant that a young Jewish girl named Esther uh, is chosen and selected to be the next queen. Now, it happens that Esther is the adopted daughter of a man named Mordecai who has connections with the court. Uh, and yet, neither Mordecai nor Esther have expressed who they are, that they are, in fact, a Jewish people inside the court. The king throws yet another party, another feast, to celebrate his new queen. Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate the king, uh, and Haman, the prime minister of the king, he, he is really proud and arrogant, and he decides he wants everyone to bow down to him. And so Mordecai won't do it. We don't really know why, but Mordecai won't. So Haman plots to kill Mordecai and to get rid of all of the Jews. And so the king declares that all of the Jews are to be killed. So it is in the context of all of this feasting, the celebration, the revelry, what one scholar describes as a preposterous keg count, that we come to Esther chapter 4. Uh, so looking at Esther chapter 4, we're just going to look through this verse by verse. In verse 1, it says, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. So all of this is a symbol. It's a public display of mourning, of sadness, of grief. It's what one scholar, Ayelet Seidler, describes as petitionary mourning, asking, begging, pleading, and publicly showing mourning. Uh, some of you might know, but sackcloth, sometimes it's described as burlap, sometimes it's said that it was made out of goat's hair, sometimes it's said it was made out of hemp or some rough uh, material, but regardless, it's not something that's comfortable. It's not our cozy sweats that we pull on or our flannels. It's uncomfortable, not something pleasant. Ashes, wailing, all of this is showing a deep level of concern and, uh, and remorse and sadness. In verse 2 of this chapter, it says, But he went only as far as the king's gate 
because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Now, the contrast here is interesting. Mordecai is mourning, he's upset, he's visibly distraught, and he's not allowed into the place of feasting. The palace is off limits. I mean, who wants a negative Nancy or a buzzkill at the party? Right? Keep them out. Keep them away. Let's not deal with whatever it is he's upset or frustrated with. Let's keep him out. The, the party is in the palace. Let's keep it here. Continuing on in verse 3, it says, In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So what was originally Mordecai's grief becomes a communal grief. All of them, once they hear this edict and find out what's happening, are, they join in and they partake in the fasting and the mourning. They're petitioning for a change. They want reality to be different. Continuing on in verse 4. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Notice Esther's response to Mordecai. She is uncomfortable with Mordecai's grief. She sends him clothes. She's like, ah, Father, you're embarrassing yourself and me. This isn't really a big deal. I don't really know what the problem is. They don't know who we are. They don't know we're Jews. Just put these clothes on and pretend that it isn't a big deal. I'm sure the king will throw another feast soon. Come back to the party. Ignore the problem. Now, it strikes me that in our culture, we often are uncomfortable with people's grief and the hard things that are happening in our world. Part of this is, I think, because we are barraged in many ways by negative. The media is filled with negative stories. Negative things in world affairs are all around us. The region I described at the beginning of this sermon has been the political football of two nuclear powers for 75 years, and conservative estimates are approximately 60,000 have died in the struggle. You can't meet a Kashmiri who doesn't describe the story of a loved one or a neighbor who's been killed in the violence. And as recently as 2019, in August of 2019, the Indian government imposed a six-month ban on the internet and cell phones, fully shutting it down where people didn't have access to any of it. I don't know if we can even fathom what it's like to not have internet or cell phones for six months and then interestingly followed up two months later by COVID restrictions. Can we think about the suffering and the hardship experienced in Ukraine or recent events in Gaza and Israel? We are often uncomfortable and have a hard time entering into the dark things of the world because we just want to put the clothes on and move on and return to the party. Embodying lament, entering into the sorrow of others, I think is what in many ways we are called to do. And so I'm asking us to do that. Let's take a minute to listen, to embody, and to feel the pain of our world. To enter into the darkness of the headlines, Israel, Gaza, everything that's happening there. So let's take a minute, close our eyes, and petition on behalf of our global neighbors that God would intervene.
Holy God, we know that you are present. And when the lived reality that we are experiencing and that we see in our world doesn't align with who we know you to be, may we have faith and trust that you will do a new work. God, we pray for peace. We pray for mercy. We pray that you would send angels to Israel and Gaza, that a miracle would occur, and may we be willing to intercede and to petition and to mourn alongside those who are suffering there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us not put on the clothes and return to the party. Jumping down just a tad bit, in verse 9 of this passage, it says, Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said, explaining the edict of, um, of that the king wanted to kill all of the Jews. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he would be put to death. The only exception for this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Esther originally refuses to help, knowing the risk. It's dangerous. She can't approach the king. She risks her life if she does so. After all, they don't know she's a Jew. She's been invited to the feast. She's in the in crowd. Helping out Mordecai and the Jewish people is risky, deadly, and not something Esther is particularly interested in. She says, not my monkeys, not my circus, not my problem. Mordecai, you figure it out. This, uh, you know, sort of taking this into our day, this is hard, right? What power do we have to solve problems like Israel and Gaza? What problems, what, what power do we have to solve the problems of Ukraine or the region of Kashmir that I described? I think sometimes it can be overwhelming and we can at points feel powerless to solve the problems. And yet, I fear that often leads us to doing nothing. And yet, fasting, mourning with, and petitioning our holy God is, is what we can do. It is a powerful thing that we can do. And let us not lose sight of that power. Continuing on in verses 13 and 14, it says, well, verse 12, it says, When Esther's words were, were reported to Mordecai, he sent back his an this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai basically says, you think you're unaffected. You think this isn't your problem. The grief, the hardship, the difficulty that they're not yours. But Mordecai challenges this idea and says, you can't escape it. In other words, we're in this together. You may live today, 
but grief mourning will come. You have the power to help, so help. Help. Do as you have the power to do. I find it interesting um, because, again, I think that sometimes we can run away, right? We can make it easily not our problem. And it, it becomes problematic because I think we have power and we have the ability to do something. And so finding ways to intercede and to petition and to mourn alongside. Continuing on in verses 16 and 17, it says, then Esther, verse 15, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you, as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Esther finally relents and agrees to help Mordecai and the Jews. She calls on a communal fast. There is a sense that fasting is about, this fast is about petitioning and praying. It's communal and mourning. Esther, who has the power and position to avoid the pain, enters into the mourning. She finally allows herself to feel the pain, the grief, and the vulnerability that Mordecai and the Jews are experiencing. She, she chooses risk, standing in solidarity with their suffering. Fasting is certainly a part of a request for deliverance, but it is also a stand with a people that are experiencing hardship and risk. She chooses to enter in, takes on the pain, and chooses to relate. There does seem to be a power in participating with people uh, in their suffering and pain. Uh, the region that I went, that I described at the beginning in Kashmir, they have a lot of tourism there. And in 2014, I was doing research in that part of the world, and they sell a lot of shawls. And those shawls are often, uh, in most of the shops, they're pretty small and narrow little shops, and they stack up their goods. It's not like if you go into a department store here where everything's out on a hanger and displayed where you can see it. It's meant for shopkeepers to actually do something and to show off their skills. And so they have all of these little shawls that are folded up neatly, and they're put into these little plastic lining liners. And um, Kashmiris, they sort of have a reputation. If you went to other parts of India, they would be described as, as a good um, sort of con artist, right? That they're able to sort of take advantage of their tourist customers. That's their reputation. And so when I was working with them, I kept hearing this theme from them that they felt victimized by their customers, that they felt taken advantage of by their customers, and it sort of didn't line up with how people described them. And so um, after a while, they finally, I can remember one particular day, it was very, very busy in the shop, and so the, the shopkeepers were all busy doing things, and they asked me to join in, which was great. And so I actually started trying to sell these shawls. And a customer would come in, and uh, she would say, oh, I want a red shawl. And so you'd go over to the red shawls, and you'd pull it out of the plastic liner, and you'd throw open the shawl. And you'd pull out two or three in that same manner, throwing them open. And then she'd say, ah, I want better quality. So you'd go to the better quality section, you'd pull out the plastic liner, throw open the shawl, and you'd throw out two or three more. 
And then she'd say, ah, never mind, I want a yellow shawl. So you'd go over to the yellow shawls, and you'd take it out of the plastic liner, and you'd throw it open, and she would feel it and kind of bicker, and she'd ask the price, and you'd do this, you know, a lot. And then she'd get up and walk away and not buy anything. And all of a sudden, in the moment, when I looked at the 50 shawls spread out that I had to fold neatly and put back in the liner, stack back on the shelf where they belonged, that I began to feel their pain, that I began to empathize with. It wasn't simply that they were the con artists taking advantage of the customers. Oh, no, I feel their hardship and their pain. Sometimes it's in participating with that we can truly begin to understand and resonate. In participating with, we can physically enter into the pain of another even if only in a small way. Fasting can allow us to feel the pains of hunger that our friends who are hungry live with. It is a powerful physical demonstration of solidarity with our Ukrainian or Middle Eastern friends who may not easily have a warm meal. Solidarity with our friends experiencing natural disasters like in Maui or in a small way relate to the homeless in our own community. I think sometimes as Westerners, we can separate our physicality, our physical bodily selves from other parts of life. But imagine this scenario. You're rushed to the hospital with a child who needs a complicated heart, risky heart procedure. You're grief-stricken, terrified, and in your hospital room, it just so happens that out your window, you can see the club next door. And your family and your friends Pastor Scott, Pastor Olivia are all headed over there to the club to live it up, to feast. Tell me our physical displays of concern don't matter. They do. Our physical displays of concern allow us to connect with others and in some way allow us to enter into the pain of others to be present for and with their suffering. What we do physically with our bodies matters. Fasting is one tool and one path that allows us and presents us with the opportunity to stand in solidarity with those who are suffering, granted in a small way, to to physically demonstrate that you are with, mourning alongside, and in that, that we can petition the Most High, Holy, Loving God on behalf of those who are suffering. I think it seems obvious that in the book of Esther, there is a significant contrast between fasting and feasting. According to Catherine Gwyther, the first four chapters of the book of of Esther presents fast feasting as a Persian pastime. Mordecai and the Jewish community in Esther are ultimately drawn into and pitted against as those who fast and those who grieve and those who mourn. If you read to the end of the book, we know that Mordecai has been invited in to the feast. Uh, And in fact, a holiday is declared called Purim that Jewish communities today still celebrate. It's interesting that in Purim, in in the celebration of Purim, even to this day, both fasting and feasting are a part of that celebration. As Christians, the paired images of feasting and fasting should resonate. We can reflect on how fasting and mourning and grief most perfectly revealed in Jesus' solidarity with humankind is is shown us. Um, There's an old hymn 
that I, I that comes to mind, uh, where it says there's there's no such friend like a, like there you know there's no such friend like Jesus. Uh, he he walks in our pain. He knows our struggles. There's no 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 such friend like Jesus, and he knows our pain. He knows our suffering. He knows our grief, and we we live into that as Christians. We experience his presence and his mourning with us. And before we jump ahead, sometimes we need to live in that, right? We can also rest assured that through the mourning and through the grief and through the suffering of our Savior on the cross, we have been extended an invitation, an invitation to the feast where the powerful and the corrupt are sent away and where those who partake in the suffering are invited in to the celebration. So what do we do with this? We grieve with others. We grieve with our global neighbors, with the people around us. We grieve and mourn. We allow ourselves to enter into the grief. We petition on behalf of our grieving neighbors. Um, I think we're too easily moved beyond the hard. There's a book by Barbara Brown Taylor that describes our faith sometimes as full solar Christianity, meaning that we're so eager to run to the light, we don't allow ourselves space in the darkness to wrestle with the darkness, to realize the pain, to live out the pain, to lament, to cry out. So allow us to, on some levels, be willing to embrace or at least accept the darkness before so quickly racing to the end. I think we can focus. Focus. The world's concerns are huge. The world is interconnected, and in a globalized world where we know everything all the time, I'm just not sure that that's the way we were created to be. I don't know if we can solve and fast and pray for every issue that comes along. It's just too much. I, because of my connection with Kashmir, have focused on this place for many, many years. In fact, every night I pray with my children that my Kashmiri friends would know peace, that they would know the peace, the absence of violence, that they would know peace, that all would be well, and that they would know the peace that comes only from Jesus. So I ask you, in what way can you grieve with others? How can you find a focus to grieve alongside and mourn with? We can move beyond our safety, our comfort, and be willing to enter the risk. This is one that is very difficult for us. But how do we move in to what God is asking us to do? Life is hard, and the Bible is filled with lament and vulnerable people crying out to God. We need to be willing to enter and to go into the dark spaces. We need to be willing to enter into the darkness in order to be with and to point people to Jesus. We need to be willing to go and extend an invitation, an, an invitation to the feast. I don't believe, just like Esther, that God is always calling us to safety and security. 
In what ways is God calling you into risk? In what way is God calling us to enter into the darkness, to move beyond our comfort and our safety, to mourn and to love our world? In what ways can we extend an invitation? And lastly, we can fast to stand with the poor and the marginalized. Again, I've said this, but it's a physical display of grief and mourning allows us to feel in a small way the difficulties and the struggles of those around us. And it demonstrates solidarity with those who are suffering, those who are poor, and those who are on the outside. Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how through mourning and through, through the sadness and through the grief, we can see the feast and we can see the invitation to it. God, may we, may, may we not be too quick to run through it. May we stand in solidarity with those who are suffering. May we experience their pain so that we can relate and empathize. And may we extend invitations to those around us and to our world that's in desperate need of a Savior. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.